Welcome to another episode of the Spoon Mob Podcast. This week, I'm joined by Chef Janice Carte. She is the founder and CEO of Tiny Spoon Chef, which is a private catering-styled company that is across multiple cities, primarily on the East Coast, but they have expanded recently into Chicago. But their whole business model is the in-home chef experience. So anything from you're hosting a dinner party and want a chef uh, in your home to cook the entire tasting menu to somebody coming over a couple nights a week and doing meal prep or cooking your family dinner doing meal prep and making these meal kits. So all you have to do is pop it in the microwave or the oven for, you know, 30 minutes or whatever, and then you have food for your family. So they take basically any aspect that the private chef could do, any private chef that's out there, you know, by themselves running their own business, but they kind of grouped it all together by locale. So in different cities, New York, Boston, Chicago, DC, um, they have a whole list on their website of everywhere they're at. You go through this information gathering screening process. They chat with you, kind of figure out what you're looking for. If you have any dietary restrictions, if you're looking to, you know, do weight loss or build muscle and want high protein or whatever. And they go through this whole process and then they set it up. So, you know, the chef does all the cooking for you and does all the grocery shopping for you. So they go to different farmers markets. It's a really interesting concept and there's nothing else out there quite like it that I've seen. There's different private chefs. There's people that have leaving the restaurant industry and starting their own thing, whether it's pop-ups or doing tasty menu dinners in your home or private events, stuff like that. That's kind of been going around for a while and has recently started to blow up, I think, uh, since kind of coming back from the COVID pandemic and restaurants opening. But I haven't come across anything that has taken the individual private chef and loop them into this umbrella network all within one company that provides benefits, 401k, paid time off, like all that stuff, health insurance. I haven't seen anything like that. So we had Matt Larkin on the podcast a couple months ago. He moved to New York. He's with Tiny Spoon Chef. We kind of talked about the company a little bit. And then, you know, once that episode aired, Janice actually reached out to me and was like, hey, you know, if you ever want to have a conversation, I'd love to, you know, come on the podcast sometime. So once we kind of wrapped up some of the other scheduled recordings we had, you know, we got something set up with her. And, you know, like I said, it's just nothing that I've encountered or seen before. There's a connection because, you know, she's from the Boston area, which, you know, I've from that area, uh, Cape Cod. And Cape Cod was the second area that she expanded her business to uh, in the early days. So, Super interesting conversation just about how she navigated, you know, the culinary industry herself coming up and working in kitchens and both front and back of the house and stuff like that. And then how she started this business and then how she's grown this business into what it is today, where it's this network of private chefs that are all within the company, but they all work in different locations. Some in, you know, New York City, Boston, DC, Miami, Chicago. And it's just super fascinating to see somebody kind of put this all together. And really the possibilities are kind of endless as more people kind of expand into the space of being a private chef. Now they have the dilemma of, okay, do I want to do my own thing, my own business, or do I still want to do my own thing, but have the backing of this corporation where I get all these benefits? And she kind of goes into detail about about, you know, how that's all worked in early days, hiring people when she was like a business of one to where they're at now. You know, they have more than they have like 30 or 40 people, I think, within the company currently and are looking to expand into different cities and markets um, going into next year and everything like that. 
You can follow her on Instagram at Tiny Spoon Chef. She has a bunch of videos, kind of cooking lessons, stuff like that. They do some stuff on TikTok too as well. You can follow us on Instagram at Spoon Mob or on all the other social media platforms, but mainly use Instagram. Make sure to check out our website, SpoonMob.com. We have information on all of our guests there, different food photos, links to every episode that they've been on, all that stuff you can find there. There's a contact portal you can write in, questions, comments, feedback. Thank you to everyone who's been using that. I received a few messages already earlier this week, so that was great to see. You can also email us directly, spoonmob at yahoo.com. People have contacted us that way too. And make sure to follow, subscribe to the podcast, whatever platform that you use. We're on all of them. If there's for some reason a platform that you use that you can't find us on, which there shouldn't be, things happen. Sometimes networks lose connections to different feeds and everything. Just hit us up, let us know, shoot us an Instagram DM. You can shoot us an email or through the website or whatever. Just, hey, you know, I'd like to use this platform you guys aren't on here you know what's the deal i'll look into it i'll get it resolved like i said we haven't had that happen but if for some reason out there we encounter that then let me know but otherwise we're on every platform just search spoon mom you can find us and then just click the follow button all new episodes will get downloaded straight into the player for you so as soon as you open that app episodes will be there new episodes release every thursday 1 a.m but we do drop some special ones here or there little mini updates with previous guests and then we also put everything on youtube which is a week behind when everything hits the podcast feed. Don't want to hold up the episode any longer. This is my conversation with Chef Janice Carte, the founder and CEO of Tiny Spoon Chef, based out of Boston, Massachusetts. Thanks again for coming on the podcast, taking some time out of your day. I know you're pretty busy because you're running an entire company now. So I want to get to kind of how you founded the company and where you guys are at and future expansion plans and everything that you guys kind of have going on. But I always like to start at the beginning with everybody and kind of how they first get involved in the hospitality industry. So for you, I mean, how did you first get involved with cooking? Because I think you're from upstate New York originally, right? Yeah, from the mountains of upstate, like actual up upstate. So Adirondack Mountains. Yeah, before I was cooking, I think I was just enamored with working in restaurants because that's what was available. So my first job in a restaurant was at a Friendly's. I was a waitress. I was a pretty terrible waitress too, actually. I remember uh, dumping like an entire milkshake on someone before their date was the friendlies right by the mall and they were going in for a movie date and the entire milkshake ended up on this girl's lap was pretty bad yeah it's a big you know northeast chain they still have ice cream in the the groceries aisles here you know might be controversial opinion on my part but i think the the mint chocolate chip ice cream still holds up it's still very very good i had it not too long ago you're working at friendlies but did you ever think that you would have a career in cooking up to that point i mean i think your grandmother was a big influence on kind of early cooking life but i mean that's when you're a kid but looking back on it was that helping shape kind of where you were gonna wind up going I think the interesting thing is that for me, it was never really specifically about food. It was more about the community of food. It was more about what food did, the empowerment of everybody was together and sharing and it was always laughter. And there were certain moments that just felt right because of certain dishes or I have amazing aunts and it was like this holiday was only right if this person made this dish. And so it was that kind of feeling that I always wanted to create and really loved. My mother is half Korean. I had a whole funky smells and flavors of childhood that kind of came from her side of things. And then my paternal grandmother and aunts and uncles had the very kind of traditional Americana sort of childhood from that side. So 
I was always enamored with that more than I was the actual preparation. It was just the feeling that came from that, which is what we try to do with the current businesses. It's the community of food, bringing people together. So you wound up going to college. What were you going for? You didn't go to culinary school, right? No, no, not at all. Um, in high school, I was really into fine art and painting and large scale sculpture. And my father, who I was really close with, was terrified that I was going to be, this is like everybody's, every parent's fear, right? Is that I was going to be an artist and I was going to live in a cardboard box on the side of the road. I don't know any artist who lives in a cardboard box, but that was his vision. And so I went to school for graphic design and, um, and marketing. And so that's what I pursued. And it turns out when you're not super passionate about that, when you go into school, you're also not super passionate when you get out of school. So I did it. And I checked off that box and I have opinions about the way that we're marketed and the way that design looks. And I think that will be with me forever. But that's the story. During that time, like when you're in college, you were still involved in the hospitality industry, right? You were kind of doing like odd jobs and stuff. For sure. I was talking about this with a friend the other day, thinking about bartending and how much crazy money I made 20 years ago. And where did that all go? I have no idea. I definitely didn't have anything good to spend it on then, but um, was bartending, was working front of house in restaurants, was meeting great people. And in the summers, I would go home to upstate New York and I would talk myself into great relationships with people in the kitchen. I would uh, bring great bottles of wine and say, oh, I want to I want to take some notes. I want to know how you braised this lamb. I want to know how you, you know, made this or that. And so we would sit and have great conversation and chef would cook after hours and make something great. And we would just jam and share recipes and talk over great wine. And it really got me even more curious about learning new techniques and learning new process. Did you ever consider at any point going to culinary school, like switching either from marketing or going after you completed your degree? Not really. I think at that time, it's funny to think about how long ago it was because it doesn't feel that long ago, but it was just not really a respected career at that time. The Food Network was kind of just coming out with this chef kind of culture. It was more of a job that you toiled away at than a profession. And I think in my mind, I'd just always been led down this path of of fine art, of producing in that way, of doing marketing. And it was never something that I'd really considered doing. It seemed more of an indulgence. It seemed like, oh, that would be so fun. I like to ask this question to everybody involved in the industry. If someone in your company now or interning or, you know, just started and, you know, it's like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm really interested in becoming a professional chef doing this as a career, do you think I should go to culinary school? You know, what would you say to them? That's a really good question. And I would say I've met so many people over the years who have learned just as much from hard knocks, having a great smile and openness, a sense of humility and talking themselves into a great situation. I would say culinary school is not a must. I think finding yourself in wonderful situations and being open. Kitchens are always looking for great people. And if you're a great person, you go in with that mindset. I think there are amazing opportunities to be had. And I know far more people who've pursued authentic spirit in that way. Um, Not to knock culinary degrees, but they get you started maybe in more of an accelerated way, but you can certainly learn the same techniques and the same information and maybe have a little bit more clout. If you started as the dishwasher, the prep cook, if you know the bottom to the top, it's you have a little more grit. That's what I would say. 
So for you, what happens after college? Like you graduate graphic design, marketing degree, not super excited about the industry there. Where do you go then? Because at some point you wind up going overseas and traveling, but fill in kind of the gap in between that time. Ray, that's a very big question. That's a huge question. You're just asking about very casually about like a span of years. I ran a printing company in Vermont for a number of years. I had a great relationship, traveled a little bit after that, left. It was a really interesting span for me. I worked my way up to several different jobs. I traveled around a little bit. I lived in Charlotte, North Carolina and worked in a couple restaurants down there. And when I came back, my father said to me, great, you know, what's, what's going to happen now? And I said, I threw my name up on this site to be a nanny. I have no idea what's going to happen. So they flew me to Paradise Island in the Bahamas. I got the job. I lived in Maryland for a while. When that job ended, he said, what are you going to do now? I said, I don't know. And then I applied for a job as an innkeeper and I moved back to Vermont and I lived and managed a property there. And I was 25 It was a 10 bedroom property. It was kind of a crazy experience. And then I worked at another one and I was a wedding planner and then I was fired. I was fired from this job that I really hated. It was very stressful. And I worked with a woman who was a lawyer in Europe and she did like all sorts of war criminal trials and all these crazy things. She told me about her travels. So I was fired and she said, now's the time. You're 26, get your passport and go. So I did And I took odd jobs for like two and a half months, saved every nickel I could, sold all my belongings, never been out of the country. Everybody always says, oh, did you grow up with all this great food culture? Did your parents love wine? My parents never drank. We never traveled. We just didn't. That was not the life I had. We didn't have a ton of extra money. And so I bought a a round trip ticket. I had no plans. And I went to Southeast Asia for three months as as a young single woman. And I came back with such a different confidence and perspective about the world. It was an amazing experience. So took cooking classes everywhere I went, ate a bunch of weird things like, you know, fried spiders and chicken fetuses and grapefruit and French bread in Cambodia. And it was an awesome time, but I was hooked. Why Southeast Asia? I'd had friends who I met who traveled a lot through Thailand and heard a lot about it. Um, Was really curious about Cambodia in particular and just decided to go. And it's really phenomenally reasonable to live very well on a great budget. I remember my flight was about $1,500 round trip and I lived very well for three months on about $1,500 while I was there on a budget to like have massages every day in, in Laos was pretty great. It was a pretty killer way to live for three months, just wandering around and meeting amazing people from all over the world. I think other parts of the world really know what's up when it comes to quality vacations and getting away. Why'd you come back? Just out of money? No, I'd always planned to come back. I went and I um, spent my first Thanksgiving, Christmas and New Year's away from my family. That was a big deal. And when I came back, it was time. It was time to dig into something else. So what happens then once you get back? Well, I was living at my parents' house. And again, my dad said, what are you going to do now? He always used to say, my father passed a few years ago and we were really close. And he always used to say that my toast would land buttered side up. So I was working uh, in Saratoga Springs, New York at a bar. I've had so many great experiences by just being kind of an asshole. Uh, these two guys come in and I just start talking to them. And and he had a real estate investment company. And I said, yeah, well, I went to school for marketing and you know design and web and whatever. And I talked myself into a job. And so I did that for a while save for a trip around the world before I turned 30. 
So friends of mine who had lived in Vermont when I was saving for my trip to Southeast Asia had moved to Hopkinton, Mass. They're amazing friends of mine. I had um, a young daughter at the time and they were like, come live here. We love that you're just, ugh, we're living vicariously through you. Come live here. So I lived with them and I would go into work at number nine park and I was saving for a trip around the world. And that was the next chapter for me was being in high end French Italian inspired and learning all about that level of service and that detail. And Oh my God, the cheese cart, the cheese education, the cheese nightmares I had about learning these cheeses. Where was it from? How was it aged? What was it washed with? It was like panic, but it was so much fun and it was a great experience. So one thing led to the next for sure. With Number Nine Park, you know, it's a famous Barbara Lynch restaurant, French restaurant in kind of Beacon Hill, Back Bay area of Boston there. Did you purposely want to work there? That's a very prestigious restaurant in Boston, especially during that time. But I mean, it still carries weight today, even with the evolution of the Boston food scene. But you know, why there? You know, the funny thing is when I sent in my cover letter, I didn't even change it to reflect that I was applying at Number Nine. I applied at probably four or five really high-end restaurants in the city. And the manager at the time told me after that my cover letter said that I was applying to Clio, which doesn't exist anymore. I don't know why I got the job, truly. I'd worked in restaurants for a long time, but it's just, it's iconic. And I wanted to be someplace high-end and I wanted money and a great education. And I think I'd finally surrendered to the idea that this could be a profession. After that marketing job, for commercial real estate, you know, I was, when I was doing that, when I was doing the commercial real estate thing, I was also working at a, a bakery in Saratoga Springs called the bread basket. You know, I worked at this bed and breakfast and I did all the cooking and stuff there. And, and when I walked into the bread basket and I said, I really want to do overnight baking here. And they said, Oh, this is not like when you go home and you bake a dozen cookies and it's just fun. This is production. I said, I'm into it, you know? So I baked 3000 pies by hand for Thanksgiving and Christmas for them, you know, and I would go and do marketing during the day. And then I would go in at four o'clock at night until in the afternoon until two o'clock in the morning. And I would do these you know, crazy shifts. And that was when I finally surrendered. And I said, you don't love marketing. You're constantly rounding out your life with food to make yourself happy. That doesn't make you happy. This makes you happy. So getting the job at number nine was really just a submerging myself in this environment and saying, what is this really like? There, you know, I work with this guy who now works at uh, Menton at her, you know, Reliant Chateau property. This was his career, his whole life. And it was being around these people where this was their passion, their focus. It wasn't like they were, they were moonlighting while they were doing something else, or this was a gateway. This was their profession. And so for me, man, what, what a gift that was to just really see how somebody executes and lives at that level, that kind of passion and moves through a space like that. So I wanted to feel that. And it was amazing. You're working front of house. You're working at this prestigious restaurant. So you wind up working at Oleana eventually, right? After this or before? Ray, I feel like this is dirty laundry, but I'm a chronic overshare. My vice president says this to me all the time that I will, I'll tell everybody anything. When I was at number nine park, I met my now ex-husband. I'm the, I'm happily divorced. He's happily remarried. I hear happily has children, but I met my then ex-husband. He said, I'm going to New Zealand for three months. And I said, well, that stinks because you're the first interesting person I met in a long time. And he said, you should come with me. 
And so I'd been saving all this money for a trip around the world and I ditched it and got leave of absence and, um, and went and we had Thanksgiving, Christmas and New Year's on both islands in New Zealand. And when we came back, I didn't have a job. That was the uh, winter 2008, 2009 when the economy tanked and everything. And so I was unemployed for a little while. I worked at another one of her restaurants for a little while. And then a friend said to me, Anna, who owns Oleana, um, wants to start a, a canning and preservation program at one of her spaces at, at Sofer Bakery with her husband's organic produce from his farm. And this was before all these modern publications on canning and jamming and preservation, everything. She hired me and it was supposed to be just kind of a temporary thing, just a couple months. And my grandmother and my aunts, and I just learned a lot about this and loved it. And so I went in there and when I started cooking for her, I said, oh, well, you should really have your own jars and let's design some labels and we should have labels and I'll source these. And this is the way we should order them in bulk. And well, if you're going to do this, well, then you should, all your packaged food should go like this. And then you should have spice mixes. And so it just developed. And she said, well, why don't you stay? You should stay. There's another woman and she's leaving. She's having a baby and she's not coming back and you should stay. So I stayed for three years and changed a lot of stuff. We went from nine cooking classes a year to 27 and changed the structure and the after point of sale and weddings and a whole bunch of things. And she said, we're kind of slowing down. Let's just, we're in a maintenance phase. There's a lot of stuff going on. And I started taking on personal chef clients because I am not a slow down person. And when you make people happy, they tell other people. And it just got big pretty quickly. And so I was doing all of these things at the same time. My marriage was falling apart and I put in my notice and she said, I made this so easy for you. And I remember sitting there, Ray, and I was like, you did not know me. I would not have been this person if I was looking for the easy thing. And I have so much respect for her because now that I own a company, I get it. Sometimes there's just times when you need to take a deep breath, right? She needed to take a deep breath and I just couldn't. So I put in my notice I had my last day. A week later, I decided to leave my marriage. And then my first client passed away. And then another client left. And I had two clients. And that that was eight hours that I got out of bed every week for two months. And I thought, you exploded your whole life. That was it. That was the start of the business. So when you make this shift to leaving and starting your own thing, starting your private chef business... How did you come across your clients? Were there just people that you knew that were already kind of like, hey, would you ever do this? Or or how did that kind of all materialize? Because this is all before really the private chef industry kind of blows up and it's really blown up since COVID. How did you kind of first start getting your clients? I will say that I will never claim to be the most talented chef. I will never toot my own horn in that way. I am self-taught. I know what I can do well and how I can execute well and how, and I never oversell. I will say that my superpower is people and I love people and I will take the time to recognize and empathize and create special moments. And that's what's grown the business 3000%. That's what has grown the business. And in a way I spent the first couple months being really just in a in a place in my life where it was very sad. And then I said, okay, you can either sink or swim and you're totally sinking, right? I had a tiny dog, which thank God that got me out of the house at least a few times a day to like walk her. And when I finally let my community embrace me, so these people who I was helping 
really loved what I was doing. And they said, God, we want you to do this forever. And I said, okay, well, then I need more clients. They said, great. And the next week I had three more clients. And the next week I had a couple more. And then people started talking about it. And then, and so the next year I tripled my income from what I was making before. And I was already hiring. And I think the way that it grew was in the most sincere way that it is so happy to do what we do. And people share pictures of my kid is like asking for more chickpeas and, you know, what is in these Vietnamese green beans? And, and it's so amazing. And my mom comes to visit her or my mother-in-law comes to visit and she doesn't complain about Passover anymore because I'm not cooking. It's not my, my horrible brisket. So it's just this amazing, loving thing that happens. And I just said, there's so many chefs that I've worked with for years who are overworked and underpaid and angry and never get to see their families and get married on Mondays. And this is this untapped, amazing, happy thing. So when I started sharing it, it just felt like it kept multiplying, kept multiplying. And that was it. That was the the whole thing. It just, it wanted me more than I wanted it. I was convinced it should just be a couple of clients a week while I was doing something more sensible under somebody else's shingle. How did you come up with the name? Mm, spoons and spoons, right? You and me. So from the time I was probably about 20, I was collecting small spoons and not the, you know, little novelty state spoons or the ones that have the countries on them or whatever, but like 1920s German silver. I have, of course, the mother of pearl for, you know, caviar. I have ones made of stone and wood and bamboo and all kinds of different little pieces. Um, I love them. I've always been enamored with tiny things. Um, I have collections of little tiny things. So when I needed a name, I said to a friend of mine, well, oh gosh, you know, what should I call it? And I said, oh, tiny spoon chef. I said, is that, is that fun? She says, so you, it's so you just do it. And really I use them all the time. I think it's a way to savor something. It slows you down. It's kind of cute and fun and novel. People feel silly when you serve them things with a tiny spoon. It took me eight years before I had tiny spoons made for the business. We have these little wooden spoons that have our name on them. And now that I've been in business for so long, you can Google it anywhere in the world and it just comes up, which is kind of a kick. So we use them like business cards. We give them out. Um, If you ever see one of our chefs ask for a tiny spoon, because we've always got them in our pockets. It's a way that you savor, you enjoy, you slow down. It makes you feel like a kid. It just, they're just fun. And the more that I operate in this world and connect with other personal chefs, people have such pretentious kind of names epicurean this and culinary sometimes it's just about something that feels good or warm or connects you with whenever you ask people we do interviews a lot you know and whenever you ask people at the end of a long week what is that dish that just makes everything feel good again it's always something with childhood it's always that thing right and there's a part of like a small utensil that feels so familiar and cute and nostalgic. And like, so for me, it's all of those things that make me so glad I chose it. I don't think I realized at the time how novel it was or how fitting it really was, but people respond amazingly well to it. So it was meant to be. When you're first starting, you know, like you mentioned, you have kind of four clients, one passes away, one winds up leaving, knocks you down to two clients. Did you still have that reassurance or solace, whatever you want to call it, that feeling knowing like, if for some reason this doesn't work out, I can still go back to the world of restaurants? Or were you kind of like, I really see a path forward with this. I don't ever want to have to go back to the world of restaurants. 
Yeah, right. That question of um, how did you know this was going to work or what, what, what were you willing to do? I've always been ready to stop paying myself to pay other people to prioritize that. I've never, I've never had to do that in almost 10 years. So that's been a privilege. I think I knew that I would do whatever it took. So I knew that I could always go back to bartending a couple nights a week to pay the bills. I knew that I just knew that I would do what it would take. And the thing that felt so assuring to me was I like to joke that everyone has a first marriage. Some people just don't know it yet. But while I was losing my marriage and everything was separating, there's also a number of people that you lose from the community of your life because they simply can't compartmentalize the idea that they would maintain friendships with both of you, right? So they choose sides because because for whatever reason, right? So I was losing this marriage. I lost his parents who I was very close with, who I called mom and dad long before we were engaged, you know, these other friends, I was losing all of this. And the thing that felt so good was that building relationships with these families was this, was this community, this relationship that just kept building. So that was always a gravitational pull at the same time that just said, this is a good direction to be going in. In a way, it kind of quieted all the doubtful voices because when people are, when you're having a hard time getting out of bed and you show up and people, oh my gosh, you're here and the farm share box just came and we're so excited for you to raise this eggplant. And, you know, that feeling of building a community of people who really see you and see what you're able to, to do to recognize them, that was really just infectious. That also really helped during that. I don't think I saw it then. I look back now and that was the thing that really saved me. At this time too, like, were there a lot of other private chefs kind of working in and around the area too? Like I kind of mentioned that doesn't really seem like anything, you know, maybe there were people here and there doing it, or maybe they got offers here or there on the side to do like a wedding or graduation party or something, but it wasn't like a full-time thing that people could really do until I feel like maybe the past like five years is when you see a lot of people now leaving restaurants and becoming private chefs or starting their own kind of private catering thing or, or whatever. So were there like a lot of other people in the area that you could kind of look at and pull different aspects from them or see kind of how their business model was working? Or was it just kind of like you're trailblazing, figuring it out on your own because it just wasn't something that existed? I don't think it occurred to me to really look around and see what other people were doing. And now that I've been in business for so long and it's kind of been pulled into pulled into my awareness a little bit. I'm glad that that I kind of created it on my own. So over the years, I've had chefs who've applied for jobs with Tiny Spoon who've been working as a personal chef on their own. And when they come to me, I think it's one of three reasons. Either you're not good with food, you're not good with people, or you're not good with business. If you're not good with business this is the perfect place for you because I can do the business all day long and we make it work. And what we do for our chefs is we push everything joyful to them. They worry about client relationships. Do you like chicken breasts or chicken thighs? Do you hate the green bell peppers? Like you worry about that stuff. We're going to worry about insurances and benefits and paid vacations. And we're going to worry about schedules and all of the things that are not joyful, the business stuff. What I've learned is that a lot of the personal chefs that are out there, like a lot of human beings in general, have a difficult time advocating for themselves and creating situations that actually work. A client of mine said to me, 
in the first couple of years of business, I asked her to write a testimonial. She wrote a testimonial that was on my website for a long time. And then she called me and she said, I wrote it and I sent it to you. And she said, while I was writing this, I had this feeling and I wanted to call you. She said, I love that you've built your business the way that you want to live your life. And the truth is I wasn't. It just looked that way to her. But when she said it to me, it became a really great barometer to measure the way that I was participating with my business. So when somebody would come to me and say, oh, here's a situation and you'd have to, you know, drive two hours and do this thing and da, 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 da. Like, what do you think? I'd be like, no, I don't want to live my life that way. And so many personal chefs say yes to those things and resent it. So many other business people do it, right? Because of fear, constriction, instability in the market. I said yes to a lot of things in the first two years of the business that I would never say yes to now because I had to, or I thought I had to, or I wasn't really aware of what was out there. I'm friends with a lot of personal chefs in the area now, and we have good relationships. There's a couple of people in the area who want me to, to acquire them. So there's no exit strategy for solo personal chefs. It's an interesting thought. You build a whole business and then what? At some point, you don't want to do it anymore. What do you do with this amazing book of clients? How difficult was it to hire your first couple employees? You know, because you're a business of one, you, you know, like, yeah, I'm doing this, you know, I get this private chef company. Would you like to come work for me? And it's like, you're a startup essentially. And that's a big risk, a big leap of faith for anybody to go, yeah, I'm going to go work for a startup because the percentages of startups that fail in the first year, you know, are you going to have just basic health insurance if you join this startup right away, you know, stuff like that. So how challenging was it to get your first few employees so you could kind of focus on continuing to build and other aspects? I think the first hurdle was me. I knew that I wanted to share this life with other people, but then I thought, how can I get other clients who are so attached to me? When you're a business, then you think, how could I get Jane to understand that now somebody else is going to make the spaghetti and meatballs, right? Jane likes my spaghetti and meatballs and she'll like somebody else's, but they can't possibly be exactly the same. So the first hurdle was me. It wasn't as hard to find the right people in the beginning. It was, there were definitely growth points that were super challenging. You find yourself in unknown territory all the time. There's the things that you know, the things that you know you don't know, and then there's this whole other realm of what you don't know you don't know. I found myself in that territory all the time. Coming from an industry or coming from any other background where you feel so good at what, you know, I felt good at being front of house. I felt good at marketing. I felt so, first of all, it just feels so wrong. It feels like I must be bad at this if I'm, if I'm having these questions all the time. So the first hurdle was me. And then the second hurdle was how to grow with people. So I could find people to take a gamble with me and say, this is special. But then how do you get the confidence to grow with them when, um, when every day is just, you don't know what's going to happen. And I remember my first long-term employee who, who stayed with me for a few years, uh, he asked for a raise and he, he asked for $28 an hour at the time. And he'd been with me for quite a while and he was great. And he said, I want $28 an hour. And I talked to my dad and my dad has that chain of furniture stores, you know? And he said, what are you going to do? I said, I don't know. I can't afford it. He said, well, what are you going to do? We're, I was talking to him in the car on the way there. We kept going back and forth. I was like, lay off. I don't know. And I went into the meeting 
And I came out and I talked to my dad and my dad said, what did you do? I said, I gave him $28 an hour. He said, how are you going to afford it? I said, I have no idea. He's like, well, you're screwed. I said, yeah, I guess so. Right. The next day, a Kuwaiti prince called and he wanted service three days a week just to come and cook lunch three days a week. And that was a full-time position right there. And so when I reflect on the, the way I run the business, which is that we recognize humanity first, we let fear be in the room and we don't let it lead because then we can't be making sound judgments. We always think about what's right. And so that was right. He's a great person and tremendous. He was running a restaurant in San Francisco. He was tremendously talented. He'd proven his worth. He was, he'd been with me for quite a while. I think about things like that. What's, what's the right thing to do in a hard situation. And then the rest of it always follows. So I think about that more than anything. You started the company originally, Boston, expanded to Cape Cod. Obviously, those kind of speak for themselves because of logistical where you're at and everything and not that far of a drive and, and whatnot. But how did expansion to all your other markets, Connecticut, New York City, Chicago, New Jersey, how did all that happen? Were you targeting those markets? Was it just you got referred from existing client to somebody that was already living there? Like, hey, if you had this service here, I'd I'd love to do it. Did you need a certain amount of clients in that area before you expanded there? So I know we connected through initially through uh, somebody who works for me, who's great. And I don't know if you know this about the company, but we only recently started paid advertising in the last calendar year. We grew really through word of mouth for all these years, which has been amazing. I used to feel really self-conscious about our social media following and feel you know, oh God, do we not have a credibility? And now I know how to appreciate that. But the way that we first grew, the first city that we really expanded to was, was to the Westport, Connecticut area. And the client who was telling me that she loved the way I was building my business to reflect my life, her sister would come and visit from Westport all the time. And she had two kids and then one wanted a third and had twins. So now she has four kids, right? And she would come visit. And my client up here has three children and they eat everything. They get excited about eggplant and cauliflower and they ask for, you know, like panna cotta and salad and it's the weirdest. They're amazing kids. And so her sister would come up and visit and say, my kids are so broken. They don't eat anything. And my sister's children are so amazing and you should come to Westport. And there's so many people who would appreciate this. And when we expanded to Westport, I said, it's your time. Will you help me do this? It's our first city. She said, yes. So we did bench tests and tastings at her house and we provided service for her for a while. And um, we connected with the woman who runs the Westport Farmers Market and we branched out from there. And one of our first paid ads ever was a picture that she texted me of her son. Everything is real that we put, nothing is like posed or anything like that, is a picture of her son. And he was holding a plate that had a piece of fish on it. And he'd said to her, I didn't even know I liked fish. And it became an ad and it's, that's the real thing. And so we posted that and it, people went crazy and just started sharing it and saying, you know, and she said, I thought my kids were just so broken, but I just didn't have the bandwidth to put things in front of them or to have that focus. And we just look at that one small slice of people's lives and try to improve on that each week. It just kept going and going from there. I think we knew we wanted to expand. I think New York city was someplace that I really open about, like I never wanted to be. I find New York city very stressful, but I know credibility wise, I needed to be there. 
And it was close. And there's a lot of mobility from New York City to Connecticut. And so we have clients who kind of move from both areas. So um, when we moved into New York City, then Brooklyn was kind of a, you know, oh, we should move to Brooklyn too. And and then one of our chefs here has really great ties in Chicago. We had great talent in Chicago and some good ties there for friends and connections. So just kind of went from there. And now we're doing a lot of research on where to go next. So with going next, I mean, what's your criteria? Like, do you look at this location has to have a good farmer's market scene or minimum number of clients? So it makes sense for somebody to be you know, operating in that market. Is there anything that you kind of use as a criteria to differentiate different potential places? Ray, it's a lot of fucking around. <laughs> this isn't that territory where we don't know what we don't know. We have administrators now. We have six amazing people who run the the higher level of the company. And they used to be all me and and Jared, my VP, is amazing. And we talk about this now. This is this is the saying, as I said, oh, we need to the only way we get through this, all these question marks is we have to start getting out of limiting the answers we give. So it has to be like, what is the answer? Even if it's completely unreasonable, I want to know, is it we need $5 million and we need to get to Kazakhstan and we need to find three old ladies and we need a goat. And what are all the answers? Put all the answers on the table because we don't know who has a goat. And so now this is all distilled into like, do we need a goat? So when we're having these discussions and it's really hard, we're trying to figure something out. This is what we say to each other. Like, do we, do we need a goat? We're trying to figure all this out. We're asking these big questions and we're actually doing a project with um, the graduate school at Babson and we're working with these amazing, I don't know, I don't know what I thought. They're fully formed, amazing professional people who are giving us their time. I'm so in presence of the gift of time. We're on this planet for an unknown amount of time and they're helping us kind of figure this out. But we look for obviously a certain level of affluence, but we also look for um, a good food culture. We look for, we have to look for a presence of talent. That's something that I don't think we fully appreciated in certain markets. It's been really hard because while there are great people and a great desire, if there's not a good existing food culture, if it's like a, a TGI Friday's Chili's kind of place that doesn't appreciate kind of what we do or smaller individually owned establishments, boutique kind of eateries, we're not going to find chefs that can prepare that way. We're going to be finding the need, but not able to meet the need. We're trying to figure it out. We have a couple of great companies that we work with who do demographic research for us. It's super interesting. It's also super creepy how a lot of that works. I don't know if you've ever like, oh, we can, we can take your this person and figure out why they're more likely to purchase or do you want people who've purchased cashmere sweaters in the last six months like it's fascinating and creepy and also amazing see for me like when I'm shopping for I'm like oh I need some new sheets right and I'm shopping for it and then like some curated stuff comes up like I don't totally hate on it it can be kind of efficient and sometimes new brands and things and then other times it's just it's so creepy and weird it's both for me it's both with you guys looking to constantly kind of expand and, and talent is a big part of, you know, there has to be somebody that can execute and cook in the style that you guys have. And what do you guys use to kind of determine if there are chefs that kind of fit the company culture? Because is it somebody that's worked in a restaurant? Is it somebody that's gone to culinary school? Is it somebody that's 
looking to get out of restaurants to kind of retire or not work, you know, 16 hour days, six days a week. What do you guys kind of use to judge to see if this person is a fit? Cause I mean, they might apply or might be interested in, in working for Tiny Spoon, but maybe it's not a fit for them, but it's also maybe it's not a fit for you guys either. The interesting thing about what we do is there's not a sort of set parameter. So we recognize who people are as individuals and we want them to continue to be those individuals. So our interview process is a little unique in that way. We have a short period of time to get to know them and we want to know what excites them, what makes them passionate about food, what direction they're curious in. And we like to match them up with people. I do actually all the matchmaking than the company. So I see myself as a fancy matchmaker now. I think the company culture for me is really important because there's a lot of people that we meet who are really entrenched in the toxic history of restaurants and are looking for that puff up your chest. I make myself feel bigger by making you feel smaller. Here's who I know. Here's the positions I've held. And there are certain markers that we see that just kind of, you know, are a little bit of a red flag. Sometimes... For instance, so we'll we have a few rounds of interviews. We will do a bench test um, where we taste their food. So that might involve flying to a different city to meet them. Um, and then if we're doing a stage with them, we'll typically fly them to one of our bigger markets and have them work with a senior chef. Sometimes they just let it out because they just, that's who they are. And they'll say, my guys, my kitchen, the way I like to run things. And we're like, mm. No, not our people, right? Because that's not the company culture. We are very much, I restructured the company this year so that all of the staff is eligible for profit sharing. And I think it's just healthier. And so we have a mentality of we're generally all food nerds. We like to share. We want to know what other people are doing. When one of us rises, we all rise. When someone joins the team, we're all checking in on that person and making sure they're good and they're supported and they're getting their questions answered because that's what's healthiest. And it's not about who you know and what credentials you have, because we've had people who are just naturally really good at what they do. We have somebody who's 20 years old on the team right now. She is amazing. And her time is not worth any less than somebody who's been in the industry for 20 years. It's just different. It's what she has is different. And so we have a holistic nutritionist on the staff. We have people who run Michelin starred restaurants, like it's a huge spectrum. And so we recognize who the individual is. And also there's this amount of EQ that really is so different. So we recognize too that each household is different. Some households, for instance, will give you very directed, like, this is great. This is not, don't want the peas, very, you know, they do not need what a really emotionally relating stay-at-home mom of four kids needs who wants to talk to you about how the carrots have to be done. And they need somebody who has a different level of emotional relationship. So there's also that. It's not only the talent, but it's who has that, that they're going to give this person that kind of feeling. That's what keeps a relationship for a long time, right? If you're an emotionally relating person and you have somebody who's not going to give you that, you're not going to have a feeling about that person long-term. You're going to feel like they're distant or you're going to feel like, do they really like being here? Some people, it doesn't even occur to them. It would never occur to them. Do they like their job, right? Somebody who's like runs a corporation, never sees you. They don't care if you like your job. If you do it and you execute and it's beautiful, other people, it really matters. Walk me through console process for, you know, a new client. Like how does that work? Does it 
we need a preference sheet on, you know, obviously you probably need, you know, any food allergies, but like things you do like, things you don't like. Is it like life goals? Like, are you trying to lose weight? Are you trying to build muscle? Are you just trying to eat better? I'm assuming you guys have to figure all that stuff out, right? Like you have to go through some sort of client interview or client consult probably. Yeah, I'm smiling at you because that's the secret sauce. I think it's easiest to kind of mirror back feedback that we get from clients and they like the process. I think I spent 10 years doing this. And so two months ago, I was doing all the sales calls for eight cities. Two months ago. That's nuts. That's completely nuts and emptying and just empty well situation. But I love it. And I there's a lot of psychology involved. There's a lot of building a relationship involved. And I don't mean to say that in a sense that it's not genuine. It's genuine. I really care about people. And even in the training of this new person who's who's doing the calls, you know, she said to me, she would hear things. She's like, that's amazing. She's like, you knew from the beginning, this wasn't going to be a client. I said, yeah, but like her sister has an eating disorder and she's trying to help her. And like, this is obviously not the right thing, but like she needed like 20 minutes. So like we gave her 20 minutes, like she needed to talk this out. Right. This is what we do is we have, we hold space for people. Yeah. There's a lot of preferences. There's a lot of hearing people. There's a meticulous system of how do we share information? How do we keep this straight? How do we, we have a lot of different integrations between different software. It used to be a really manual process that just had a lot of room for losing pieces and we still lose pieces, but it's getting a lot better. And we keep trying to think about moving towards the direction of joy, both for clients and for associates. So are we spending hours doing something that's really not great? How could we improve this and streamline it? The onboarding process for us is really important. Everybody wants to be heard and treated like an individual and exactly where they are. What is the menu for a tiny spoon chef? Like what are kind of the services that you guys offer? Yeah. So the beauty of what we do is it's completely flexible and it fits for each individual. So we don't have any preset menu formats. We don't have any expectations about what will make you happy or feel supported. We just take the time to figure out what that is and to improve on that each week. So a lot of times what it seems as though is asking for feedback for many professionals can be difficult because it opens you up to those painful moments of hearing you didn't do things, something perfectly. For us, it's really an opportunity to to know somebody better, which is our ultimate goal is to be the easy yes of the week. So we respond to the kind of curated part of the market. So the beauty boxes, the bark box for your dog, the right, I don't need to know 300 options. That's a huge job. I need to know the things that are absolutely best for me. And that starts with a human element. So where we shine is we create as a team, we look at what's seasonal, what looks great in markets and what's inspiring. We collaborate and then we curate for each individual household and we create for each individual within the household. So it's important to me, for instance, if you and your partner, one of you likes mushrooms and the other one doesn't, or somebody's vegetarian and the other person isn't, we can still get you together around the community of food. That community of food is important. The ease of the meal is important. So for people with kids, if you're getting up and down three times and getting toast or putting chicken nuggets in the toaster oven, like that's not actually dinner. You're still navigating. So how do we take the time to understand, great, if we are making a stir fry, but we leave some of the chicken separate and some of the broccoli separate, 
that's going to be success for you. Like, let's do that. That's actually not hard to do. It just takes care and asking the right questions and delivering on it. And those things are what we're really capable of. So the biggest part of what we do is weekly meal service for people where we're proposing curated menus. We're delivering on that. We're doing customized grocery shopping. We're keeping their house stocked with the things they like to have it stocked with. Most clients see us once a week. It's a take the pressure off the week situation. We're trying to kind of break those stereotypes or expectations that this is a celebrity, really affluent kind of... We cook for lots of people. We cook for some tremendously, you know, well-known people. We cook for everyday people too. So sometimes once a week takes the pressure off. Sometimes we see people multiple times a week, larger households, people who really want to be super in control of their diet and want everything squared away. We can do that. People can use their time differently. So you could say, hey, I love having friends over for dinner. I'm a disaster in the kitchen. Plan a four-course menu. Um, make me feel like a rock star. I want to do it. I want to do it myself in quotes. We can do that too. So there's lots of ways that people have a weekly relationship with us and they have that flexibility. But then we also do events as well. It started off with just helping our clients that we have a relationship with and kind of an extension of that. But it's grown a little bit. We take on events as we can. We prioritize our chefs and their quality of life. So it's a raise your hand kind of situation. If something interesting comes along, if it's a client, we definitely take care of them. If it's an interesting situation, if it's something we can kind of, that piques our interest, we do it. We look for the right kind of people. But if my chefs say, hey, nobody wants to work on this Saturday, then I pass it up because it's not worth the compromise of of a life. They work 40, 43 hours a week at most. And I'm proud of that. What's the most out-of-the-box request you've gotten from a client? No names or anything, but what's the one thing, like when you look back through the course of Tiny Spoon, what is the one that stands out? You're like, I still can't believe like that person asked me like to do this. Oh my gosh. So many funny things over the years. I mean, God, I could definitely write a book on some of the stuff that has happened over the years. I've had people specify like, what size fingerling potatoes they would prefer and how many pieces they would like them cut in. And just clearly people with OCD. I had a person who said we would like our pots scrubbed in concentric circles, but not concentric circles. Like you put the scrubby here and scrub in concentric circles. It has to be concentric circles from the center, like radiating from the center of the pot. And our spices have to be, you know, organized and whatever. And then I get a call and it says, oh, and the we have to talk about something. And I said, what's that? And they said, in the spirit of, you know, efficiency, I think some things have been falling through the cracks. And I said, okay, let's talk about this. And the person said, we found the cumin by the marjoram in the spice drawer. This warranted a phone call. This was the same concentric circles in the pot. And I said, I think that there's someone out there who's going to make you tremendously happy. And I don't think that person is me. There's crazy stuff out there. When you're in someone's home and you're nourishing them and it's that very intimate experience, they let stuff out that you, that you're like, you should keep that. That should be yours to keep. Don't tell me that. This is not a bartender situation. We are both very sober. Don't. What would you say the biggest benefit is 
you know, what's the most popular with clients when you guys get feedback? Is it, you know, that you guys gave them time back or the health benefits? They're able to be more productive because they don't have to worry about grocery shopping and meal planning and, and all that stuff or getting the family together because one kid's got soccer practice, the other one's over here at volleyball. Like what is kind of in general, the best or most popular feedback that you guys get from clients? There are so many ways in which this benefits people that is not directly food related, although there are many health related and crazy things that I've heard. I think the most remarkable for me that people express is that they don't anticipate how much joy it's going to bring to the overall household. So what happens is partnerships shift when they're both feeling supported and they get out of the, it was your turn, it was my turn, like that delegation game that can really easily happen. And then when, if there are children present, when the children stop seeing that, right? And they start seeing more ease in a in a partnership, when the children start eating different things, exploring different things, and then they start navigating in the world when they're out in a different way with more curiosity, that's what's really interesting. Sure, there are people who annual blood work they get compliments on, which is just used to be so bizarre to me, but eating more vegetables in a more diverse nutrient spectrum is, is going to bring general health, right? But to hear that, that generally like the overarching joy in the household is like, we're not racing around or like get to bedtime or hurry up or finish this. Or I know it's eight o'clock and I just finished that for me is remarkable. I think about my childhood and I think about it was always my stepmother. She was always tired. Why was it never my dad's job? Did he get the milk on the way home? What were we going to have for breakfast? Why was it, you know, I need t- help with homework, but nobody ever had the time. Like all that is gone. So that's what I think of is we bring joy. We make joyful jobs. We bring joy to that side of things. Roughly how big is the company currently? We have over 30 employees now. As businesses expand, as businesses grow, a lot of times they reach a point where they lose some of the characteristics that made them special, that made them popular in the first place, that made them grow. Whether it's ice cream company going nationwide and now they don't innovate as much with flavors because they're trying to appeal to the the masses. How do you avoid those pitfalls as you grow? How do you still maintain the ethos of Tiny Spoon Chef while expanding to different markets and and adding more people? That's a really good question. I think my vice president has been really amazing with that. He came from a huge corporate background and he's put a lot of pieces into place that I'm proud of. So every Thursday morning, we have a call with the entire company and I close with, so we have um, a chef give an inspiration moment, something, maybe it's something they're reading or a client moment or something like that, that kind of connects everybody and is really relatable. I close with a moment on company culture to just kind of connect everybody. I think there are definitely some opportunities that we have there for sure. I think social media actually can help in a way as well. So I've been putting my face a little bit more on social media too. One of the most difficult things about growing from both sides, but particularly in the hiring process, which leads to company culture, right? Is to get people to understand that the building of this business for me, this business is my passion and I love what I do, but businesses are typically built on making money. And this is a for-profit business. And if it ever, I can't lose money because (laughs) I'm not a charity, but that's not what drives me. What drives me is bringing joy to people's lives, whether it's chefs or whether it's clients. 
And it's very hard for people to understand, right? It's really hard when you say to somebody like, I'm not, this is not like global domination. This is not, it's fun and I like doing it. And I think it's a valid pursuit. Give our chefs Fortune 500 benefits. We limit their work. These are unheard of in the industry. I really believe in it, right? And so then when you say, I think social media can also give that platform to say, this is what we're doing. This is our superordinate goal is improving lives. We're all moving towards that. And hopefully that also permeates into company culture and scalability to say, we're going to soon have employees who will never have met me during the hiring process. We have clients who are coming on who have never talked to me now. And it's really a little bit sad in a way. And hopefully that can kind of come out through social media, through a little bit of me getting over my own whatever and saying, this is this is what we believe in. Yeah, the business is growing and it has to make money, but we have a robust like profit sharing program and retirement program and we're we're wanting good lives. This is what we do. So I'm hoping that we're doing things the right way. I'm hoping that we're having good conversations. I call my chefs regularly. I check in with them. I want to know that nobody's falling off the boat. I don't know how that happens if we double in size. I can't call 60 people all the time, but but 30 people I can. So I try to. COVID, the pandemic, did it help or hurt Tiny Spoon Chef? Because there are some businesses overall, yes, the pandemic, bad thing. But there are some businesses that saw success or saw an increase in profitability, whatever, that they probably wouldn't have seen otherwise because of COVID, whether it's people focusing on different things, shifting priorities. Did COVID help you guys? Did it hurt the business? Did it really not make a difference either way? COVID for us helped the business, I think. And I would caveat that by saying, I realized how much of that was mindset and that I'm now willing to take some credit for that too. (laughs) So when the beginning of March of 2019, before COVID hit, I was completely falling apart. So I had an app that was ready to be beta tested and come to market, which I've since really backburnered. And I was disappointing everyone. I was disappointing the developers. I was disappointing um, my staff. I was doing all the sales and invoicing for this company. I was working as a personal chef. I was doing everything. And I saw a person on social media who a friend of mine who owns several restaurants and That person was in Florida on a boat fishing and I was like, go fuck yourself. I was so angry. And I thought, how have I been doing this for seven years and you're on a goddamn boat and I am barely breathing and I feel so panicked and I must be doing something wrong. And so I actually talked to that person. I talked to other business owners. I interviewed some business coaches and I said, I need a business coach. I need just like, there's something I don't know. And so I hired a business coach. I paid her an astronomical amount of money for me at the time. Her name is Hanukkah Antonelli. She is amazing. I've worked with her ever since. I will never question again. I stopped cooking. I started running the business and then COVID happened. And I thought, you are an idiot. Now you have this bill coming. And I saw all these businesses that were food businesses that just were like, I'm out, right? That just said, whereas if they had any tenacity to just like, hold on for a second, Pretend like you need this business, which I did. And I love these people. I was like, I didn't do this for seven years to watch the livelihood of these people go away. You know, I watched people who there's a business south of the city. It was started by a couple of people in finance. And I thought these financial people, like they have their shit together. Of course they know what they're doing. 
Nope. They were the first ones to close their door. If they had hung on for two hot minutes, they would have slayed. They had a killer price point. Everybody was ordering fancy delivery. Nope. They tapped out. So I would say that a lot of this for me first started as disempowerment. I was very, I was chicken littling. I was like, the sky is falling. Everything's exploding, but like, I'm going to do the best I can. I stopped looking around and I just started focusing. And I said to the chefs, say yes to everything you can say yes to. And I'm going to drive this ship. And they were like, got it. And we did that. And once I was clear that everything was going to be okay, I gave them all huge bonuses. And I said, okay, we're going to keep going. We're just going to keep pushing through. But I remember talking to my coach and I said, because remember Black Lives Matter was such a like, on top of all that, we were like all these rallies and people were together and we're like, oh my God, but COVID, like what's happening? And I remember I was like, Black Lives Matter. And there was a little kid who just oh was playing music at the animal shelters and he got killed and, and unemployment. And I remember talking to her and, and she said to me, Janice, she's South African. She said, Janice, South Africa has 50% unemployment. I said, yes, I'm so concerned about unemployment. I said, my business is growing and I feel terrible. South Africa has 50% unemployment. Do you know what people don't do? They don't run around like, oh, crying, like, oh, unemployment. She said, people still invest in businesses. People still go to work. People still buy groceries. People still redo their houses. People still whatever. She said, what is this doing? What is this doing? I said, it's not doing anything. She said, yeah. She's like, so what are we going to do? She said, she said, donate to a charity that you care about. I said, Okay. She said, what can we do about unemployment? I said, we can hire somebody. She said, yes, we can hire somebody. So I hired so many people during COVID and we just plowed ahead and we gave charitable donations to frontline responders. And then we promoted that. And then people kept giving money and they were like, can we give from our nonprofit? And I said, it's not from nonprofit. We are profiting. We are making jobs. We are, they're like, great. We'll just give from our other bank account. Like it just kept happening. And I think it was just like that digging in. So we grew. It was not graceful in the beginning. It was a lot of like crying on the floor and like, and just feeling it was heavy. It was so globally heavy and all the protests and all the, the Trump rallies and all the, it was a really overwhelming time to, to turn on any kind of news. And then on top of that, to just feel the restaurant brethren crumbling And then to feel like, okay, I don't really want to talk about the fact that like people are banging down my door. We added benefits during that time. I said, what do people care about the most? I need to give them stability. And I didn't know where it was coming from, but that's when we added our 401k program. Give me your best Matt Larkin story. Ooh, we call him Malarkey, you know? We have two Matts. We have a Matt up here in Boston and then we hired Matt Larkin. And so we call him Malarkey. Best Matt Larkin story. He's just a treasure. He impresses me with, you know, you delegate tasks to him and it's like follow through is crazy. But we did a chef tasting recently in New York. We rent these furnished apartment, you know, like exec apartment rentals because we need a full kitchen and everything. It was not our usual one. I think it was, maybe it was like Labor Day or something like that. And he'd never been to one with both my VP and I, but we were down there and we invited him to come. And we're watching this candidate and they are cooking and it's like a crazy situation the person bought a, brought a grill pan and was grilling and it was getting smokier and smokier. And of course, it's like the 26th floor of this building. And so the windows just barely tip out like six inches because you don't want anybody offing themselves in a 
So we're in this very weird, like form over function apartment. So it has like beautiful modular furniture, but none of it is like comfortable or can do anything. And this table, he's sitting at this table and the whole thing's like wiggling. And, and so we're all sitting there, we're watching this just disaster unfold. And we're all on Gchat, like texting each other while we're sitting in different parts of this like very weird apartment. And we're watching this person and and Jared, the VP was like, oh, it's getting smoky in here. Like maybe you're going to want to, you know, do this a little differently. And she's like, well, do you think if I move this and turn the fan on and we're just thinking this is obviously not working so then all the smoke alarm goes off and immediately the three of us like Matt like jumps up and and there's these tiny bedrooms and these beds and Matt jumps up and he's like on top of the bed and he's like trying to fling this window open but it's not going any further than like six inches and we're standing there with like bath towels and we're madly flapping our arms trying to these really high ceilings trying to get air to the oh my God, to the smoke detectors. And this person is just standing there looking at us completely calm as the three of us are just like jumping all over the place trying to, to get this to stop, right? And this is one of those places where you, you do your online like digital check-in. So there's no phone in this apartment and you can't call any place. You can just text or madly texting. And we're just picturing the entire 26th floor apartment building or whatever it was 34 apartment building and he, and Matt's just sitting there and he's like do you think we can put the table around <laughs> his table he's just such a such a champ he's just always willing to hop on a table or dash across a bed or try to fling open a window and and he says yes to driving across New Jersey when somebody quits last minute and if he was in the foxhole with you you'd probably be okay what's next professionally for you and for the company We've been looking for a flagship space here in Boston. We'd like to have um, a space here where we can do some community building and have our own commissary kitchen here. That's a dream. Um, I'd love to be able to do hands-on events and maybe cookbook signings and maybe pop-up dinners with some of our staff. We have the most amazing people. They're all, you talk about like what we look for, be on the team, but they're all like these individual gems who have their own unique food perspectives and we didn't leave the restaurant industry because we dislike it. It's just not a way to live your life all the time. So if we had a space or we could do that restaurant thing once in a while, it'd be pretty great. I think that's what's next on the horizon. We have more cities on the horizon. We're always looking for great chefs. We're always looking for great people. We're not done with our benefits package yet. We're still talking about ways that we can add to that next year. I just think that there's more opportunity. And for me, the more that we talk about what we do. I think the better employment culture we live in because people can build businesses differently. You can build it just by, I'm thrilled that we have good people who have great lives. And one of our chefs took his kid to Disney World this year. That was something that was never possible in his life before. And we have another staff person who's been saving 10% to his retirement. That's amazing to pay somebody that well and to have a program like that. So there's a lot of good stuff. I want to keep making lives really great. So I want to keep talking about it. So other people raise the bar a little bit. I raised the bar. I started adding benefits because somebody I used to work with gave healthcare to their very small staff. And I just thought if they could do it, I could do it. That's the real truth. I never, it never occurred to me that I could until somebody else started talking about it. So I think more people need to talk about it. So we got a handful more questions left. So this question is left behind from our previous guest on the podcast, uh, cheesemaker John Reese of Black Radish Creamery here in Columbus, Ohio. 
what meal would you want to have and who would you want to have it with that that meal would mean the most to you? And it doesn't matter if it's cooked for you or cooked by you. That's a really powerful question. Well, my dad and I were really close. So it'd probably be a BLT with my dad. And he always burned the bacon. I'd probably have to have burned bacon. He was just the best. And I think about him all the time. And I wonder like what he would think of the business now. And I know what's weird is I don't know if you've lost anyone significant in your life, but I think the losing him is a little easier now because I know we knew each other so well that I know what he would say. I know he would never have assumed the risk that I have, right? He was very cautious, but he always wanted me to trust myself, but I would love to have burned bacon BLTs with garden tomatoes and like really good sourdough corn on the cob. That was like still like my favorite simple, but that was like a dad dinner. That was, that'd be pretty good. What's a question you want to leave behind for the next guest? Tell us about a meal that really surprised you and left you wondering. So this next question comes from one of our listeners. Uh, they wrote in, a lot of chefs have left restaurants in the past two years and moved into the private chef space. Do you think that trend will continue or do you think there'll be a ebb or flow back in the other direction where it just won't be sustainable and, and some people wind up going back into the restaurants? Man, that's a really good question. I want to be accurate with what I say. I think there are enough people who are really addicted to the energy of restaurants. I think it takes a unique person to to really want this life because... So I, I do think that that there will be people who go back. I will say that the people who work for Tiny Spoon Chef or the people who are personal or private chefs, it's a different kind of beast. So for instance, the people who work for my company, the highs are higher working for yourself, but the lows are surely lower. We working by yourself is also really hard. We have a great community. That's part of the strength of what we do. We support one another. You don't go on vacation and worry that you're going to lose all your clients, right? I think people are going to start carving out meaning in a different way, however, right? We're going to see what the economy does with the swing of commercial property and and those kinds of values do. I think people are not going to be doing the seven day a week, the crazy kind of restaurant schedule. I think that's something that we're likely to see. A lot of the places that I like, I mean, I'm bummed that they're not open for lunch anymore, but you bet your boots I'll go for dinner. So I think people are, are trying to carve out a little bit more. Who would you say is the biggest influence on your career thus far? Boy, I'm not really sure. There are so many people who, you know, one person is so funny. I haven't thought about this in years, but when I was in Southern Cambodia, I was with this um, Australian guy, Arpre, and we kind of take a bus to the border and then you have to walk across. And there's this little town called Trat in Southern Thailand. And it's actually... It's a really bizarre little place. Like this is where like the, the most untouchable men you've ever seen, like go and like buy a girlfriend for a month for like their vacation. It's a very bizarre little place. But our prey said, when you go here, there's this one stall, this little old lady, she makes these fish cakes and you got to go and have their fish cakes. Right. So we're there together and we cross over and we're walking over. And it's like, there's so many of those people in my life. This little old lady, I think little old lady, she probably had like three teeth. And if you've ever had like Thai fish cakes, they kind of like whip the fish and whip it and whip it with their hands with this like red Thai curry paste and they whip it. And it does not even look like it's, it's anything left, like the texture of it. It almost becomes like this gummy, it has this different kind of, and then they pat it and they kind of shallow fry it. 
we have such a, an impatience in this country with food, with really understanding. We want to do it all. We want to do it for 20 minutes and say that we've mastered it or we've made it twice. And like that woman, like that was her whole life. He knew exactly where to find her. He's been going there for 15 years. Like somebody like that, that's the person who really like that's dedication or, or going to Antep in Turkey, which is a small town that I went to with Anna from Oleana by the border of Syria and, and the head um, baklava chef there spent 25 years learning the oven, the oven, when to move, how to watch it, how things should rise and puff and then takes it out. And he's waiting for the right moment to put the honey syrup on. Any one of those people is just that teaches you something about patience. We're so in a rush. What's one kitchen item that's not a knife that you can't live without? Oh, that one's too easy. A tiny spoon, preferably with a long handle. (laughs) What's a restaurant you'd recommend in the Boston area? Sarma. So Cassie was a longtime chef de cuisine at Oleana, and she's an amazing friend and talent. And I think what she does is just... It's another level. When you taste something that's both familiar and surprising, that is such a gift. She has that gift. You've traveled a lot, but bucket list travel destination, bucket list restaurants, so any place you haven't visited yet that you still want to go to, and then any restaurant you haven't eaten at, but you still want to dine at one day. I don't really covet restaurants the way that I used to, I guess. I don't know how you feel about it, but I'm much more enamored with divey taco joints and hole in the wall and I want to know what the good street food is. So I don't feel like I have a ton of places that are on the list. But for me, uh, I'm thinking about spending Christmas in Morocco. I'm super enamored with just the spices and like that feeling and the colors. And just it has this romantic feeling for me and just a departure from my day-to-day life. Portugal is on the list. I'm thinking like textures and spice and men with dark hair. I don't know. Craziest thing you've seen happen in a restaurant while you were working? I mean, hookups in the walk-in, rodents in the diet, like terrible, terrible things. Maybe one of the funniest was when I was in college and I was working front of house at a place in Marblehead, Mass. There were these two couples who would come in for dinner and then they started coming in with the other partner. They were both cheating on their spouses with the other person. <laughs> that was pretty funny. And they came to the same restaurant. Isn't that bold? Oh my gosh. But so many back of house things that are just like trashy, but you've read them all. If you've read Kitchen Confidential or anything like that. Food or drink guilty pleasures or anything that you know isn't uh, super healthy, but you just can't help yourself, whether it's candy, fast food, anything like that. Oh my God. Crunchy Cheetos. The regular ones don't. The Jet Puffed are trash. I don't want those. The crunchy ones. The only beer I really like is Amstel Light. Everybody makes fun of me for it. I know nothing about beer. I'll drink other things, but only if people put them in front of me. That's probably it. Crunchy Cheetos and Amstel Light. That actually doesn't sound bad as a snack. I might might need to have that together one of these days. Favorite Instagram account you follow? We Puppies. W-E-E Puppies. It's not a food one, but I have a three and a half pound dog or three pound, five ounce dog who's a Yorkie and... I'm a sucker for tiny, tiny dogs. Like everything, tiny things, tiny dogs. If you need a break in the day and you see a tiny dog, go for it. Favorite dish, favorite thing you ever cooked, created. So kind of looking back on your career, you can kind of point to this thing as your aha moment. Like this was when you kind of knew I could be a professional cook, be a professional chef. I got asked to fill in for a private chef for this billionaires. 
for two weeks and I felt super self-conscious. Her private chef was this British classically trained guy. And he did all these like very stodgy 1970s, whatever stuff. And I went in for a tasting and she, you know, hired me for the two weeks and I, she offered me the job and she said, 250,000 a year. And I said, no, and she said, 300,000 a year. And I said, no, cause I was just, I want to do this. I was happy, you know? So the last day that she was there, I went in to serve lunch and she never let anyone wear black and everyone was wearing black. I said, what's this about? And they said, we told her that we're in mourning because you're leaving. And she allowed us to wear black today. And I served just very classic. One of the things she really likes. And I made a um, steamed artichoke with stuffed, like with the lobster and tarragon salad. She held both of my hands and she said, well, didn't you show us what we should have been striving for all along? And that for me, it wasn't about the dish. It was just like such an experience to go from feeling so insecure about being who I was and not, I I felt like the bar had been set in this other place, right? This very classic British chef with his, you know, floating island and whatever stuff. And then here I am and I was doing what I love to do, you know, and they said, oh, she doesn't like too much acidity with her dressing. And then somebody tasted something I'd sent out and they said, oh, that's too much acidity. And I said, well, you're tasting the thing. I said, you have to trust me if this is what you want, you know, and she loved it. She said, this is the best salad I've had. I said, see, that dish made me feel pretty good that day. It was a pretty good day. I'm an Anthony Bourdain fan, but not everybody is or was. If you were, was there a moment, episode, scene, something that stands out? about him to you? Or if you weren't, was there somebody else that was kind of like a culinary personality that you gravitated towards, whether it was an Emeril or a Julia Child or anything like when you were kind of coming up? I was definitely a fan of his, although you sort of wonder how much he was a caricature of himself or when someone's presented that often. Uh, Rick Steves, I feel like Rick Steves is the other side of it. He's so you know, like the travel guy is so like Mickey Mouse and whatever. And then apparently when he's in person, he's a very different, a little bit salty kind of guy. You wonder where Anthony Bourdain really is. I would say that what, I don't think there's a specific episode or there's a specific moment with Anthony Bourdain, but I love his genuine curiosity. And there's something about a really humble person who's both really respected, right? In his own right but is able to approach with that humility to really, that enables someone to really connect. And I think that was what was most remarkable about his television programming was just didn't matter who it was. It was like, we're just going to get in here. And I'm struggling to remember there's a, what's the new, there was a relatively new one, um, a new, new ish reality show about food in America. They did one on Mexican food towards the border and it was like Tex-Mex stuff. There's some really interesting programming that's being made. I don't know if there's any one person who I feel like is that inspirational. Um, I've met some really, some really crazy people over the years through other chefs and through other experiences. You take little bits and pieces where you can and the creativity and, but I think curiosity of others really, really stands out to me. And when people are generally good collaborators That for me, makes the most memorable experience when you meet somebody else who cooks for a living. We've all met those people who are very closed off and protective of their creativity and that's fine, but it's not compelling. What's really compelling is when you meet someone who is generally interested about you as well, who's interested about the space in between. And I think that's what people really related to with Anthony Bourdain was there was a lot of space in between. Where can people find you? Social media, website, plug everything. 
social media at Tiny Spoon Chef, website tinyspoonchef.com. We're super around. We are in Boston, Manhattan, Brooklyn, Chicago, North Jersey. We are in Miami, Washington, D.C., Madison, Wisconsin. We're probably going to be in a few more cities next year. We are the happiest people. It comes from a really genuine place. I was born a helper. That's what we do. We love it. I hope it shows. I still talk to people. You could still book a time with me to talk. People get really surprised, but I talked to like six people last night. I love it. So if you're uh, somebody who's interested in the Tiny Spoon Chef services in one of those markets, uh, just go through the website and submit like uh, through the portal, like questionnaire. Yeah. So actually every single person that we take on as a client, we talk to on the phone first. We don't do anything over an email or a, you know, or a form or anything like that. We want to get to know you. It's really important for us to hear what's your life like. How do we keep up with you? How do we make it special for you? So 15 or 20 minutes on the phone, you can sign up when it's convenient for you and we'll give you a ring. We want to know about your kids who are broken and hate fish. Or your husband who only eats, you know, steak and potatoes, and maybe we can get him to eat something else. We like to hear all the dirty laundry about your judgy mother-in-law. So just tell us, and then we'll help you find some solutions. And then average pricing is usually... Yeah, average pricing is usually uh, $375 to $425 a week for service. And then groceries are just a reimbursement. And events are, we create really freely. So we do really unique events. You're never going to get like a seasonal soup selection or seasonal salad selection. I think it's really boring. I want to know how you want it to feel. Are you wanting people up dancing? And is it loud music? And are you like, then that's what we're going to create is something spicy and fun and lots of colors. Are you wanting to sit for 10 courses? Like we can do that too, but we create really unique events and some of them are really crazy. We've done tequila tastings and we've lots of fun stuff. So we do that too. And if there's any chefs out there that are interested in working for Tiny Spoon, should they just email in a resume or contact portal? Yeah. So we have a careers tab on our website and it has a lot of great information about what the job is like, about our benefits package. You can apply right there. We have a great CIA agent that is um, chef intelligence acquisitions person, Hannah, and she helps us coordinate all of that because it's quite a process and you should definitely apply if you're curious. It's a fun job. There's a reason why I have I figured out benefits and then I've never had a chef leave the company. So I'm really proud to tell people that, that we make great sustainable jobs. Um, we continue to grow with people. I get how remarkable that is, but we try really hard to create good relationships. Well, this is awesome. Again, I really appreciate you coming on and, and taking some time out of your schedule. I know there's always something for the business that you could be doing. So it's not lost on me for you to take out, you know, hour and a half, two hours to, to chat about everything. What you guys got going on, it's unique. I think there's great expansion in the future um, based on people that I've talked to and where the industry is heading and the things that people want out of the industry of being, you know, a chef or an and being involved with restaurants too as well. Some restaurants are able to provide some of those things, but there's still a, a big vacuum in a lot of places and a lot of cities and that just barely have health or, or anything like that. So I think you guys are gonna, gonna be expanding to a lot of cities in the future with everything that you guys got going on. And um, yeah, I wish you guys nothing but the best. And hopefully, you know, one day maybe Columbus is one of the cities that you guys expanded. I don't know. We could fall into the territory or we could fall into that territory that you're talking about where uh, 
where it's a very TGI Fridays heavy marketplace too as well. We kind of tread the line sometimes on those. So we'll see. I don't hate on a good buffalo wing either. So I mean, let's just say that I'm a crunchy Cheetos girl, but we have to make sure there's a good chef clientele. Um, yeah, stay in touch and um, yeah, let us know if you need anything. Thanks. It was fun. Big thanks again, uh, Janice, for coming on the podcast, taking some time out of her late morning, early afternoon to chat about her career and where Tiny Spoon has been and currently is and where they're headed to as well. So as she mentioned, you can follow them on Instagram at Tiny Spoon Chef. You can also follow their individual chefs too as well. Uh, You can pretty much look them up through the website and and find them. It's pretty easy. Matt Larkin's on there and everybody else too, depending on what city that they're in. You can also go to their website for more information on their services. Uh, You submit through their little contact page fill out kind of the questionnaire and then you'll get a screening call. Uh, You know, you get a time to set up to chat with them and they'll go through kind of what you're looking for, you know, what they can offer, pricing, all that stuff. But as she mentioned, the average price is like $375. Obviously that doesn't include groceries, which I believe she mentioned too as well. That's not an insane amount when you think about what the cost of groceries is. You know, I saw something the other day that everybody should expect to pay a thousand dollars more a month in groceries because of inflation with costs rising and everything like that in terms of their financial flexibility and budgeting for 2023. I don't know exactly how they come up with all those numbers though. I mean, I'm sure there's some formula, but also some of it's probably just mainly guesswork um, because it's how can you kind of estimate some of that stuff? But it's really not um, you know ridiculous when you think about how much you spend on groceries per week or per month or anything like that for a family of two, family of four. So if it was a service here in Columbus, I'm, I'm sure we would have utilized it by now, but hopefully they do expand here. But if you're in one of the markets that they're already in, encourage you guys to check it out. But uh, make sure to follow us on Instagram at SpoonMob. Check out the website, SpoonMob.com, and make sure to subscribe to the podcast. But appreciate everybody listening. If you're new, welcome. If you've been here for a while, appreciate everybody uh, with your continued support and listenership and helping spread the word. And we will talk to you guys next week.